Good morning. So it's good to be back up here with you guys. Uh, last time I was here, I think I was sharing how we, my wife and I, are expecting our first grandchildren in June, and uh, the one child who, uh, child, she's still a child even though she's 30, you know how that is. Uh, she's due on June the 6th, but she's already dilated and things are already started. She's in pre-labor, so we're kind of excited, and she's kind of nervous, and I think that's how it should be. <laughs> But uh, because of the fact that her husband is deployed for a two-week drill in Gulfport, Mississippi, so he is a, a reservist CB down there driving a front-end loader, moving dirt around, uh, he's trying to get back, but the Navy, being the Navy, isn't so sure he needs to come back yet. So we're just hoping that she can wait and the baby can hold on a little while longer and he can get home. So we're happy that things are happening that way. Hey, we're looking at uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 13 to 17. And last week, if you were here, you remember that Dale was talking about the mystery of lawlessness and the man of lawlessness and the coming of the lawless one. And some words that are kind of uh, unsettling, even though we don't understand all the mystery that is being written about by Paul here as he looks ahead to what is going to happen in in times that are yet to come, but it's clear that Satan is active in the world. He has been, he continues to be, and he will be for a while. We do know the truth, however, that Jesus said he saw Satan fall like lightning. Jesus knows who wins. Jesus has already won. He is already Lord of all. But Satan still battles, and, and Paul knew that, and so he tells the Thessalonians that Satan is still active, and there is a man of lawlessness, there is an antichrist, spirit of antichrist, active in the world, and you need to be aware of that. There will be deception and delusion, and all that's to come. And so Paul warns them, and that's, so we ended last week with a, with a, it's a real good warning for us to be aware of that. We're not exactly sure what the mystery will mean for us. They weren't exactly sure what it would mean for them. Christians throughout the ages have gone through the battles of spiritual warfare, trusting that God is able to win the battle and equip us, as Paul would write in Ephesians 6, with the whole armor of God as we do battle against our foe. And so we get to verse 13 in chapter 2, and the, the whole mood changes as Paul changes his writing and begins to say what he's thankful for. So let me read these verses, and then we'll unpack them a bit. He begins... 2 Thessalonians 2.13, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us either by spoke, our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and, de and word. So that's what Paul writes in this section. It's a, it ends with a benediction. We'll see that at the very end this morning. But encouraging words as he is thankful. And if we're alert, and we've had our breakfast, you've had some coffee, you're alert enough to realize that as Paul writes, we, are, we ought always to give thanks for you. It's the same words he said 
back in the first chapter, verse 3, we ought always to give thanks for you. It's a, it's a phrase he uses in his letter writing at times when he writes to churches for which he's thankful that, that something good is happening. Now, you know, churches get reputations. If a church is around long enough, it'll get a reputation for something or other. Sometimes a church has a reputation for outstanding Bible teaching. It might have a dynamic preacher or just a, a, a good, solid, biblical basis that's taught and preached regularly. And so that church begins to be known in a community as a, a good Bible church. <clears throat> Weesburg Community Chapel uh, certainly has been known through history with Dick Woodward's teaching as a strong Bible church, teaching the Word of God. Sometimes a church has a reputation for its worship. Maybe it has an incredible organist, a maestro, a Ted Cornell. Maybe it has a worship band that's just the latest thing and, and playing the most contemporary music. Maybe it has just an amazing choir. The churches can be known for their worship. Sometimes they're known for their outreach. Maybe a church has got a great interest in helping people cross over from death to life to come to faith in Christ. They have lots of baptisms. They're sharing their faith regularly. They're known as, a, as an evangelistic church. Or the old term is a soul-winning church. They're known for that. That's their reputation. Sometimes it's community service. It's a church that loves to get involved with people in the community, loves to help people in need. They have an agape program, maybe. They reach out, they care for people, they give money to those who need it. They could be known and have a reputation for that kind of service. A lot of times it's programs. You've, you've known this, or church is known for their, their great children's ministry, or they've got a great youth program, or they've got great men's activities or women's Bible studies. I mean, churches have reputations for all kinds of things. I remember a church down in Georgia when I lived there that was building its first building. It had been a church plant meeting in a school for years, and they built their first building. And they built for their first building a multi-purpose room, not unlike this room, and two racquetball courts. That was their first building. Uh, the pastor just thought, let's get a reputation for being an active church and inviting people. So they invite people to come in and play racquetball, invite people to come in and play basketball or volleyball. I'm not sure when they got the word of God, but they got toned up athletically at least, so they were, they were known for something. But you know, churches can go south as well and get reputations that aren't so shining, reputation not so much for teaching the word of God, but for teaching something else, teaching false teaching. Sometimes churches are known for being kind of arrogant, being exclusive, being the country club church. The first church of whatever sometimes is the, la the joke is, well, of course, they are the church of this community. What is the reputation of the church of the Thessalonians? Paul says twice now in this letter, he ought to be thankful for them. The first time he writes that, chapter 1, he's thankful for them for two things, really. They demonstrate faith in day-to-day -day living, and they love one another. That's what he's thankful for. So, Paul is saying, I'm thankful that the church of the Thessalonians continues to demonstrate faith in the midst of persecution and adversity, which they're going through, and they continue to love one another. They're not throwing each other under the bus, <laughs> even though they are certainly going through affliction, even though there's pressure on the church. And sometimes, you know, outside pressure on a church can cause the inside turmoil to increase. 
And sometimes that outside pressure, instead of helping the body to love one another, the body begins to snipe at one another. The body begins to be angry with one another, to take it out on one another. Paul's happy. He's, he ought to be happy. He ought to be glad. He ought to be thankful, he says, that the church of the Thessalonians isn't like that. But now in these verses, he says, we ought always to give thanks for you for something different, slightly different. It's nuanced differently. It's the same behavior. Paul hasn't changed his view two chapter, a chapter later. But now he's thankful not just for what the church of the Thessalonians is doing, He's really thankful for what God is doing in their midst. He says there are four things that God is doing. Notice what God has done for them. This is how he puts it. He says they are loved by God. They are chosen by God. They are saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And they are called to obtain glory. Those are descriptive words, descriptive statements of the church of the Thessalonians. So what's Paul doing? He's saying, I'm thankful, yes, for your behavior, church, but I'm really thankful, ought to be thankful, for what I see God doing in your midst. This is what I know to be true about you, church. This is what I know to be true about you. Let's look at each one of those. He says, we ought to be thankful because God chose you. But before that, he says, brothers, beloved by the Lord. That's how he describes the brothers, the sisters of the church of the Thessalonians. You are beloved by the Lord. So the question is, is Paul talking about the, the grand, great, universal love of God that, that covers the world? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Is he talking about sort of the universal love of God that he could say this about anybody in a sense? You are loved by God. God's lo- God loves his world. He loves his creation. Or is he talking about a more particular love? A particular love that God loves the Thessalonian church with. And probably both, but particular love is what's in in line here. God loves these brothers and sisters in the faith. God loves them. Now, believing that God loves you is possibly one of the hardest things to believe in the Christian faith. You know, we can believe the gospel We can believe the truths of Scripture. We can believe that God is who he says he is, that Jesus came, was incarnated in our world, that he was crucified, dead, and buried. He raised from the dead. He sits at the right hand of the Father. We can believe that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. But when it comes to believing that God loves you, that can be hard. And the reason, of course, is that if you have any self-awareness whatsoever, you know that you are not necessarily the most lovable person. (laughs) That if you really are honest with who you are, you know that sin still dwells in you, right? You still battle sin every day. You still do things that don't honor God. And so you think, well, how does God love me? Because I know what I'm really like. And I know the Bible says that, and we use those terms, and when it comes down to it, Do you really experience the love of God? Do you really understand the depth of his love for you? Because the fact of the matter is, of course, we think we know ourselves. We don't know ourselves the way God knows us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And yet, Paul is saying, we are beloved by God. Now, we have faith in him. If we have faith in him or trusting in Christ, 
we know we are experiencing the love of God through Jesus Christ who died for us. But it's not our faith that triggers God's love. God loves us before we have faith. He chooses us before we choose him. More on that in a minute. It can be hard to believe it. But brothers, God loves you. You are beloved by God. Paul says we ought to be thankful, brothers beloved by God. And so we are. And so secondly, he says, not only are you loved by the Lord, but you have been chosen by him. Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Or another way that that phrase is interpreted or translated, and probably have a note in your Bible, says that God chose you from the beginning. So what is Paul talking about? Well, he's talking about a word called election that he uses in other places in his letters. He's talking about election. God has chosen us, chosen Christians, chosen those who are in the church before the beginning of the world. He has elected us to salvation. God did that. Now, we might think, well, that's a term, election, that sometimes is debated. And some Christians like to argue over that whole idea that we are elected by God into salvation, as opposed to we choose to be saved. So the question could be for you, well, yeah, but didn't I make a decision to follow Christ? And if you are in Christ, I trust you did exactly that. Yeah, you made a decision to follow Christ, right? Well, when did you decide that? Was it before or after God chose you? And Paul argues here and in other places, it was certainly not before. It was after God chose you. In other words, we choose to follow Christ because Christ chooses for us to do so. Paul says it in a different way in different places. You know, and as he says this whole idea of election, he doesn't use the word exactly here, but he uses the thoughts other places. And it's clear in his thinking that what God does when he chooses somebody is to bring them to faith. He grants faith to them. Faith isn't something we come up with on our own. So as he says it in another place, if I can get this to move, Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, where Paul unpacks this a little clearly, he talks about the fact that God has predestined us to come to faith since before the foundation of the world. He says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So what's Paul saying? Paul's saying, I, am, I ought to be thankful to God who, who loved you, you, you guys, you women, you, you church who's beloved by God. I ought to be thankful because even before the world began, God had chosen you to be his people. Now, that whole idea of choosing goes all the way back to early in the Old Testament when that kind of language is used for God's choosing a people to be his own people, the people we know as the Jews, the Israelites. Again, he chose them not because they were more numerous than other peoples, not because they were more righteous than other peoples. He chose them because he decided to do that. It was his choice. And so that kind of theme goes all the way through the Old Testament, the people of God are God's chosen people. What a designation to be chosen by God. Of all the people in the world, the Israelites chosen by God. And Paul uses that language, and now he brings it into a New Testament setting, into a church setting, and says, you Christians, you likewise have been chosen by God. You are elected to salvation. It was God's choice. Did you make a decision? Yes, you did. You did because God chose you to do that. 
He gave you the gift of faith. It's not that Paul is the only one who speaks this way in the New Testament. Other writers do so as well. Peter does, Luke does, John does. The same language because Jesus used it. The whole idea that God's choice. So Paul says to this little church in, among the Thessalonians, a church struggling with outward pressure, trying to be faithful, I ought to be thankful because you're loved by God, you're chosen by God. If you know those things, it's going to make a difference. And we'll see why in just a second. You need to know them, and it's going to make a difference. Third thing he says this, you were saved by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit and the truth. He says, I, will, I give thanks to God for you because God chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Sanctification, what a nice long biblical word. One of those words we throw around in the church. And people who aren't of the church think, what language are they speaking? What is sanctification? It's like the word propitiation. Don't you use that every day in language? Only if you're doing a Scrabble game and want to win. <laughs> sanctification, that God is setting us apart, that God is doing something in us. That salvation, because it's interesting that Paul says, you are saved by the sanctifying work. And some of us would say, well, wait a minute, isn't salvation justification? Isn't that what comes first? We are declared legally righteous before God. We are justified before him. And, and Paul sort of skips that step here and goes right to sanctification. And I think it's a reminder that, that salvation isn't just a one-time event that happens in our life when we turn to Christ and we are saved, or to use Jesus' words, born again. That really, salvation is a lifelong process. We are in the process of being saved. It's not that we aren't sure of our salvation. It's not, not that we can't know that we are certainly heaven-bound and eternity right with God. But salvation is a process of us changing to be like Christ. So sanctification is that work of Christ in us through his spirit. Paul says, boy, I'm thankful that it's going on in you, church. So he could see the church from a distance. He's writing a letter. He hears reports. And the reports he hears, the reputation of this church is that the Holy Spirit is sanctifying them, is changing these people as they come into faith. And we could assume that means that there are people continually coming to Christ among the Thessalonians. God is working in them through his spirit, changing them to be more like Christ. And Paul emphasizes that work of grace in their lives. He said, he's saying, I thank God that the spirit is at work in you, making you more like Jesus. But why is all this happening? Why does God do this? What's the purpose of this? Why does God save anybody? Why does he choose anybody? Why does he love anybody? Why would he work sanctification in anybody? Is he obligated to do that? No, he's not. Does he need us? No, he doesn't. He chooses this to love us. He chooses to choose us. He chooses to change us. The purpose, Paul says, as he wraps up the last of these four little pithy statements, is that we are called to do something. We're called to experience something. He puts it like this, we're called to obtain glory. Now just imagine, there's lots of descriptions in, in the New Testament particularly of what happens to somebody when they come to faith in Christ. What the purpose is, they are given a purpose, the church is given a purpose. We have a mission to follow. We're not only to become like Christ, we're to spread the good news. We are to go and make disciples of all nations. That's obviously true of us. 
We are to be like Christ and follow his ministry. But all that has got an even deeper purpose, I'd suggest, and that is that we might obtain the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, what in the world does that mean? (laughs) What would it mean for you to obtain the glory of Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, to obtain the glory that he has, to experience the glory of being at the right hand of the Father, to experience the glory of, of a triune God, It's evident in Paul's thinking as he writes these words that he is thinking of God as triune, the three persons of God, because he already has said, we ought to give thanks to God for you, for you have been loved by, it says, the Lord. The word he uses, Lord, there is probably referring to Jesus. And then you're being sanctified by the Spirit. So we've got the Trinity at work right here in the church of the Thessalonians. The Trinity doing its thing. And again, it reminds me that salvation is a, is a wonderful invitation to experience God in his fullness. We spend the rest of our lives, once we come to faith, the rest of our earthly life, we'll have eternity to do this, to get to know the triune God in his full expression. And we experience him now even as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we do that because God's intent is that we will obtain glory. Jesus said that. He prayed that prayer in John 17. He wanted his disciples to experience the very glory that he experienced. He has in mind for us not some kind of second-class experience. We don't come to faith in Christ and give up everything, because we're called to do that, right? Dying to self, considering ourselves dead to sin, putting our eyes off the world and everything around us and focusing on who Christ is, seated at the right hand of God changing the way we think, being reformed and renewed by the way we think about things, the renewal of our mind, as Paul would put it. All that happening, all those things that we do, for what purpose is all that? So we'll be good Christians? Well, that's not quite it. No, it's more than that. God's intent for us is that we will, Paul says, somehow obtain even the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that can mean, of course, understanding his glory, Because as we understand the glory of Jesus, it helps us to keep going in the faith. As we understand how beautiful he is, it helps us to turn away from what seems so beautiful in the world. I know for me, in my battle with sin, the only thing that really helps me say no to sin is to look to Jesus and be overwhelmed with how wonderful he is, how beautiful he is. It's that whole idea, the power of a new affection. The new affection that we have as Christians is no longer for our sin and what pleases us. Our new affection is that we have Jesus and his beauty and his glory. And as it's manifest in us and around us and through us, we understand something of the nature of God working in us. That impels us, it compels us, it equips us to say no to sin and yes to God. Paul certainly has that in mind, but I think he goes further. I think for Paul, there is a wonderful hope that we will share in the very glory of Jesus Christ himself. That once we are transformed, ultimately after resurrection, but even as we're being transformed now, we experience something of the glory of Jesus. Now, guys, it doesn't mean that when you get up and leave this morning, you're going to walk through the wall because you're more like Jesus. You still need to use the door. (laughs) Just saying. Don't go away hitting your nose on the wall and we have to clean up all the blood. We still got these old bodies. We still have sin indwelling us. We need to be focusing more on the glory of Christ. 
so we can do battle against sin. But in that process, we also will experience his glory. The Holy Spirit dwelling in us gives us an experience of the glory of Christ. Paul looks at this church in Thessalonica. says, amazing. You guys, as I sit from a distance, write this letter, and hear reports of you, and, and things aren't going well in, in the sense of it's not easy street for this church. Uh, don't, not even sure they met their budget that year. I'm not sure their capital campaign was doing all that great. <laughs> I'm not sure their elders were all that right. What was right with them Paul says in these verses is that God has done something in them. That's what makes them right. It's God's work in them. God's the one who loved them, chose them, sanctifies them, is, is calling them to experience glory, to obtain it. Having said that, Paul has something in mind for them to do. Paul isn't just writing this to give them a grand theological idea of who they are. It's not just a, a spiritual pat on the back, at a boy, at a girl, you're like this because God's done something wonderful. No, he's got something for them to do, and it's very specific, and it has to do with their situation as a church in that place, in that time, with all that's going on around them. What he has in mind for them to do, we see in verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions they were taught by, me, by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So Paul is saying... Church, you are struggling against the world. You are facing persecution. You're experiencing affliction. As you are going through that, know these things about yourself. God has done these things for you. But because of that, I am telling you, this is my command, you need to stand firm. You need to hold on. Because if you don't stand firm and you don't hold on, what happens? Well, you slip back. You fall away. Now, I'm one who certainly believes in eternal security. I'm a firm believer that once a person, to use the nomenclature, is saved, they are always saved. Nonetheless, there are warnings in Scripture about falling away. There are warnings and commands like this one to stand firm, to hold on. I don't think it's a given that someone who appears to be a Christian is going to be a Christian forever. That's not my understanding. Yes, if they're a true Christian, they are, but appearances can be deceptive. When I went to my last church, I may have shared this a while back, went to my last church, called to that church, was meeting some of the people. There was an adult Sunday school class being taught by a former elder. He was teaching the book of Romans, pretty meaty stuff. And at the end of his class, after he had taught through maybe five chapters, he quit. He said, I can't do this anymore. I said, well, that's fine. I need a busy life. He has an engineer. He a lot going on. Soon thereafter, I heard rumors, rumbles of home life not doing too well. Children had kind of rebelled. They were prodigals. It was hard. Met with the couple. Soon thereafter, found out that this man teaching Romans in the Sunday school, adult Sunday school class just three months earlier, was now having an affair with one of his coworkers at work. And yet he wasn't going to leave the house. So dysfunctional, so amazingly dysfunctional. We'd visit the home, he was there, his wife was there. He was going to have dinner before he went over to his girlfriend's house. Who does that? He said, brother, you were an elder in this church. Once you're an elder, you still hold that mantle. He said, I don't know, I don't really care anymore. 
I don't, I'm not sure I believe any of that stuff. So you don't believe any of the stuff? You were teaching the book of Romans. You were handling the word of God well. I sat in on the class. He said, I don't, I don't think I believe it. And as the months progressed, it was evident he chose not to believe it. And now it's been 10 years later, I guess, and he's divorced and not married his girlfriend, has a new girlfriend, does not walk in faith and would claim at this point that I am no longer a Christian. So it begs the question, did he lose his faith? Well, I'm not sure what he had in the first place. God only knows that. This I know. What he did not do is what Paul commands us to do. He did not stand firm. He did not hold on to the truth. As Paul says, whether it was the written word or the spoken word, the traditions, and he's not talking, Paul's not talking about church traditions in the sense that we come up with ideas. He's talking about the teaching that he gave and other apostles gave, holding to God's word, the authoritative word. So Paul says, church, these things are true about you, but you've got to stand firm. You've got to hold on. Let me illustrate it this way. It's from an article in the New York Times. Well, it is in the New York Times. This one I pulled from the Los Angeles Times. Something that happened way back in 1987. Most of you were were around in 1987. You were a little younger than you are now. September 3rd, 1987, Los Angeles Times. A commuter pilot was sucked partway out of his plane and clung to the craft's outside staircase for about 10 minutes until the co-pilot made an emergency landing, an airline spokesman said today. Eastern Express pilot Henry Dempsey, 45 years old, of Cape Elizabeth, suffered only cuts and bruises and was treated at a hospital and released. The accident occurred Wednesday, September 2nd, at about 8 p.m. during a flight without passengers from Lewistown to Boston. The aircraft was about five miles outside the airport, several thousand feet in the air, when Dempsey noticed a a passenger door ajar, the FAA spokesman said. Dempsey was trying to close the door, so he got up out of his pilot seat, walked to the back of the plane, tried to close the door, when he apparently was sucked out of the open hatch. The co-pilot of the plane asked for permission to make an emergency landing at the Portland Jetport, believing his partner had been sucked out and plunged to his death. He asked for the Coast Guard to begin searching for the body. An emergency crew that met the plane when it landed found Dempsey clinging to the aircraft's outside stairs. He had to be, quote, pried off the stairs. (laughs) Amazing. He held on, (laughs) held on for 10 minutes. One federal official who asked not to be identified, they never want to be identified, do they? Don't quote me. Said that Dempsey probably did have trouble, did not have trouble breathing outside the plane because it was relatively low altitude. But he said, I still can't believe anybody could hold on like that. I would think it would be impossible to hold on at that speed. It would take iron nerves and strong muscles. (laughs) That's what Paul's saying. Guys, hold on like that. (laughs) Hold on the way that Henry Dempsey held on. Don't let go of the faith. Hold on. Stand firm. So holding on is one illustration. Let me give you another illustration as I close. This one's about standing firm. And this one is another story that has to do with Maine. So in the, the Battle of Gettysburg, 
If you visited there, the, the battlefields are an amazing place to visit. There was one place called Little Round Top that was incredibly significant in the battle, and something happened at Little Round Top that changed the, the face of the war. And I might have an artist's rendition. Then again, I might not. This man plays significant in, into the whole battle of Little Round Top. The 20th Maine Regiment became one of the most storied regiments or battalions in all of the Civil War. And what they did at Little Round Top became one of the most famous uh, adventures of the, of the history of warfare. Because the regiment, in what they did, was credited for saving the Army of the Potomac. The 20th Maine Regiment had about 350 men. They were commanded by Joshua Chamberlain, a colonel who had left his, his job at uh, Bowdoin College in Maine. He was a professor and joined the Union cause and was named a colonel. At Little Round Top, on the second day of the Battle of Gettysburg, it was realized by the Union Army that there was no one there, no Union, of, no union Army. For some reason, it was an unprotected space, which meant that it was a gateway for the Confederate Army to, to invade into the Army of the Potomac. It was not... Chamberlain, who realized that, but it was his superior officer, Colonel Strong Vincent, who responded by calling for Chamberlain and the 20th Maine and a few other battalions to enter into Little Round Top and secure it, which they did. But below Little Round Top, and it's not a very high mountain, it's more of a, a hill indeed, was uh, a pretty large contingent of Confederate soldiers. And they were very well equipped and they were very experienced. They were led by the 15th Alabama, which was one of the fiercest fighting regiments from the Southern cause. They had 650 men. The 20th Maine and its cohorts had 350 men. So at 4 p.m., the battle began, and the battle became, came back and forth. Sometimes the, the Army of the South would push up. Sometimes the Army of the North would push them down. It became so bad that those who were wounded often found themselves behind enemy lines for 10 minutes, and then all of a sudden they're... They're not behind enemy lines, and all of a sudden they are. The battle kept going back and forth. It was a tough battle. By 7 p.m., and so this was, this was in the summer. It's still light. 7 p.m., the 20th Maine was running out of ammunition. It was evident that they did not have enough ammunition to keep fighting. So Chamberlain had two choices. Either just give up, turn, and run, retreat, which would allow the Confederate Army to establish little round top as a, a, a gateway to break into the, the federal line. Either do that or keep fighting and either be uh, obliterated or surrender. Either way, it didn't look good. So Chamberlain had a choice to make. Which was he going to do? And Chamberlain chose to do neither one. He chose something different. He told his, what was left of his army, men, put on your bayonets. We're going down the hill. And that's exactly what they did. There is somewhat of an artist's rendition. <clears throat> they got their bayonets and they went down the hill. And this is not an open hill. There were, there were trees. And if you've seen the, I think the movie Gettysburg has this battle pretty well portrayed in it. And uh, some of the books written about it talk about what we think happened here. What we know happened is that somehow Chamberlain's ragtag army, what was left of the 20th Regiment, 20th Marine, Marine Regiment of Maine, is that as they rushed downhill, they so surprised the Confederate Army that far outnumbered them that the Confederate Army either gave up or ran away. They were able to capture 100 of the 15th Alabama Regiment, 100 men. The rest took off. Chamberlain and the 20th Maine held the ground. They stood firm, and then they advanced forward. And because of that, they were recognized as being 
some of the most famous courageous soldiers of all the Civil War, which is interesting because if you look back in the history of the 20th Maine Regiment, they hadn't done a whole lot. These weren't courageous soldiers until now. They hadn't had that much battle experience. And what they had had, they didn't shine. This day they did. A man wrote about it many, time, many years later, a man named Theodore Garish. He was a private in the 20th Maine Regiment, but he wasn't at Little Round Top. He was in a hospital. He had been wounded. But from what he knew it happened, this is what he wrote. Stand firm, ye boys from Maine, for not once in a century are men permitted to bear such responsibility for freedom and justice, for God and humanity, as are now placed upon you. Stand firm, ye boys from Maine. So I could close with words like this. Stand firm, ye, ye boys from Williamsburg. <laughs> Stand firm. But instead of that, let me close, and I'm sorry I went two minutes late. There's the, the marker. And I didn't advance my slides, and now they won't either. There you go. Let's close with this, the benediction that Paul gives. Having told the church to stand firm, to hold fast, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen. Have a great day.